0: The greatest amateur golfer that uh, has ever played, with a man named Cliff Roberts, they formed a golf club in Augusta, Georgia, the Augusta National Golf Club, which is now famous for the Masters Golf Tournament held every year around April there. In 1965, when they hosted the Masters Golf Tournament, Jack Nicholas, probably the greatest professional golfer who ever played, he won that year, and he won in outstanding fashion and took down the field. They asked Bobby Jones after that, um, what do you think of Nicholas and how he played? And he said this, Seriously. Nicholas played a game which I am not familiar. Nicholas played a game of which I am not familiar. Think of that quote with me, and let me ask you a question. Have you ever read a section of Scripture and listened to a follower of Jesus describe in that section of Scripture? some experience with god and say to yourself they are writing about a thing of which i am not familiar they're involved in an experience that they know something about that i have never had maybe you've said after reading a passage of scripture that is nothing like how i would describe my experience with god that's a journey with Christ with which I am not familiar. Is that our experience as we come to Romans chapter 8 and verses 12 through 17 and Paul's description of the believer in Christ and his ex- our experience with the Holy Spirit? What if God brought us together this morning to enrich our walks with Christ through this wonderful text? What if God wanted us to be familiar with the wonderful capacity that the Holy Spirit brings to us and our walk with Christ? Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, and let's get our souls aligned with the Spirit of God's work today. Romans chapter 8, we are passing through this great letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Roman Christians. He writes it in the first century. He is explaining the gospel of the grace of God in these 16 chapters. When we believe in Jesus, God gives us the gift of a righteous standing in Him. And it is that gracious gift of righteousness which makes us acceptable to God. Having received this great gift, we then live for this one who, and remember Paul's shorthand from the book of Galatians, who loved us and gave himself for us. So here we are going through this great storied chapter of Romans chapter 8. This morning, six verses that speak about the Holy Spirit. And You'll remember that up to this point in the book of Romans, the Holy Spirit has been mentioned one time through the first seven chapters. And then you turn over to chapter 8 and 21 times the Holy Spirit is mentioned as Paul accents the glory of knowing God through the Spirit of God's help. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. I'm reading this morning from the English Standard Version. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Hear the word of the Lord. Now this morning, our plan of attack is simply to do this to raise one question and give five answers, one answer of which I've already given the last time we were in Romans 8 when we came to Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. That's where we're headed this morning. Here's the question. What difference does the Holy Spirit make in the life of the follower of Jesus? What substantial change is brought to our lives when the Spirit of God comes to dwell in the life of the person who believes in Jesus? I really appreciate you know Jesus probably surprised his followers when he said it's going to be better when I leave because the Spirit will come. It's like what better than we like it with you around? J.D. Greer, that pastor in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, wrote a little book on the Holy Spirit, and he called it "Jesus Continued." in which he argued that the advent of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is simply the presence of Christ continued in our lives bodily, not in the incarnation in the years of Jesus' ministry with his disciples, but bodily with us now. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, he said. So what? when he comes to live in us, What difference does he make? Let's notice together five differences, one of which I've already introduced, so we'll just spend a little bit of time here. One, he introduces us to life. You remember that from verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, he's going to come back to this notion, and you already heard it when I read it in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So he suggests that this new capacity, this new facility given to us by the presence of the Spirit of God brings us to a vibrant life that we wouldn't have apart from the Spirit's presence with us. Now this makes sense when you think of what Jesus said in Matthew 10.10 when he said, I have come that you might have life. Now many of us remember the old King James phrase, and you might have it more abundantly, and we've, we, we like that phrase, abundant life. Whatever that is, we want to know more about what it is, and we want to experience that. Or, uh, I have come that you might have life, that you might, and here's the other translation, really live, really uh. live. Are you really living? Am I really living? Realizing the hope and the life that God has brought to us in Jesus Christ. And it would make sense that he would be accenting life because John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It would stand to reason that to know the life is to have a life that you couldn't have before you knew the life. Do you know the life? Do I know the life? We need to redefine life, real life, and death along biblical terms. Real life is found in knowing and following Jesus Christ. Ernest Hemingway was world famous as an author, quite accomplished. Carlos Baker ran into him when he was 61 years old. Before, of course, he took the pistol and blew his brains out. I think he ran into him in Key West. On seeing Ernest Hemingway, he said this, the only resemblance to the man we had imagined was in the fullness of the face. And even the face was pale and red-veined, not ruddy or weather-beaten. We were particular Particularly struck by the thinness of his arms and legs. He walked with the tentativeness of a man well over 61. The dominant sense we had was of fragility. You telling me that Ernest Hemingway was experiencing all that God holds out for us in life at 61 before he took his life in despair? Holy Spirit has come to introduce us to life. Here's John when he says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. And whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Configured around this knowing God is, as John Ortberg describes, the life we've always wanted. The Holy Spirit has brought us into life. But secondly, He obligates us. What difference does the Holy Spirit make in the follower of Jesus' life? He obligates and enables us to live apart from core selfishness. Look at verse 12. We, from Adam, inherit this sinful nature. We think first and most about ourselves and God has called us to a new kind of life he has called us to follow Jesus who wasn't thinking most and first about himself on Good Friday obviously he was laying his life down for others but one of the things that the Holy Spirit's presence does in our life is he obligates and enables us to live apart from core selfishness by the way if you were to talk to my wife or I were to talk to your wife or your husband would they say that we are driven by core selfishness or would they say there is patterns of selflessness that look a measure like Jesus in how we relate So then, brothers, he writes in verse 12, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, our age doesn't like any sense of obligation. Uh, The New American Standard translation starts out in verse 12, We are under obligation. When the Spirit of God comes to live in us, when He begins to work in us, one of the lights that He shines on is our core selfishness. We often lead with our sinful selves. It's about me. It's about the satisfaction of me. Again, it's may my name be great, May my kingdom come, and may my will be done. And that couldn't be more contrary, the life that Jesus has called us to. And though we don't like obligation in our age, the text is clear, it comes with a turf. We are debtors. What are we indebted to? We are indebted to God to discharge the obligation of putting to death our sinful selfish inclinations that what we do is we this is Romans 6 reruns we've already been through that we reckon ourselves dead to sin but are alive unto Christ and his righteousness this obligation comes with the spirit of God coming to us but it's not only an obligation that we do It's an enablement that he provides. You say, Eric, how on earth can I slay the dragon of my own selfishness? How do I do that? Through the power of the Spirit of God that has come. I don't know about you, but uh, my flesh and my will to please myself is pretty stout and pretty strong. And I need a power from God to reckon myself such that that doesn't drive the direction of my life. Now, parents used to use an old phrase, and maybe I'm just too much from Appalachian heritage, but um, I used to listen to language like this. You are not minding me. And maybe because, you know, first part of my life I heard that a lot from my mother maybe that's why it's indelibly imprinted upon me or if you're watching an old western movie you might hear the phrase you are not paying me any mind your mind is not disposed to be responsive to what I've asked you to do that's what a parent is saying to a child or Maybe, Sandy, you've said that to a student along the way, although I'm sure all you whip them in shape and all your kindergartners are perfect. Uh, maybe teachers have said that. You, you're not paying me any mind. But the idea is that when the Spirit of God comes into the life of a believer, He, in magnifying Christ, enables us to live in a way that fulfills the obligations of righteousness that we do reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive unto God. No longer I who live, but Christ is living in me through the Spirit of God. There's a sense in which we are all running a mortuary in our soul, putting to death the deeds of our sinful, selfish flesh. That's what capacity and facility the Spirit of God brings to our lives. Now, the third difference that the Spirit of God brings to us is He leads us. You see that self-evidently clear here. Look at verse 14. Don't you love with me the verb lead for all who are led. There it is. All who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Hear the word of the Lord. One of the things that's characteristic of a follower of Jesus Christ is they're led around by the Spirit of God. They're led by the Spirit. It's reminiscent of Psalm 23.3. He leads us in the paths of righteousness for His name'sake. sake. Now, it is true that the Spirit of God prompts us, makes impressions on our heart. I heard a testimony yesterday, or Saturday, or Friday, at a uh, retirement ceremony for a, Distinguished Colonel in the United States Air Force Chaplaincy Corps. He talked about a time when, 21 days after 9-11, he found himself on the ground, I think it was Uzbekistan, and they didn't have a base there. They're just on the ground with a few special operators, and he was sent in as a chaplain. And he's there, and they're trying to get this base spun up and going, and uh, so one night at 3 o'clock in the morning, he's sleeping on a cot, and he heard this plane go over, and then he heard a plane go over, and he went right over, its, over the tent, apart from the uh, airstrip that was there. And he said, I wonder what's going on. He got out of his tent, and he said it was the densest fog he'd ever seen in his life. And he was recalling this incident. as the most iconic incident in his distinguished career, but he, he actually walked out to the tarmac and got on his knees and begged God to allow those two planes, one of which had 87 uh, soldiers on the plane, to land. They were running out of fuel. They had already said goodbye to each other knowing that they were going to have to try to put it down where, where they thought it was. They couldn't see anything. It was all instruments, and, and it wasn't, the base wasn't spun up very well. In the mercy of God... Uh, there was a momentary break and one of them got to land and then coached the other one how to get down and get it on the ground but there are times where the spirit of God moves us with impressions on the heart but the garden variety and usual and normal way that the spirit of God works in our life is through his tool I love a master craftsman who has a great tool and I love to watch how she or he uses that tool to do the work my dad was in sheet metal fabrication for 42 years at International Harvester Trucks, and he, uh, he made cabs, and uh, uh, his department would uh, take pressed steel from the press room and put it together, the, the cow and the back and the plate and the top and the doors, and, and get it all set and uh, get it all ready to be dipped and, and primed and then head off to the uh, assembly plant where it was painted and stuck on the chassis. Well, along the way, the cabs would get dinged up. And so the inspector would stand there and and flag all the cabs that come off. That one has a dent in it. That one has a dent in it. And he had these craftsmen on the finish line who uh, would use, just a trade slang name, was a spoon. And they had these metal tools with particular, uh, what would it be, convex uh, directions. And they, they, they were in all kinds of shapes, But there was one master craftsman that he had who could take a dent out of anything. Some tow motor would slam against a cab and mess it up. Well, just get it to Jim. And enough time with Jim would take that tool out and he would apply that tool with the right kind of pressure and the right kind of tension. And suddenly it looked just like it looked when it was pressed out of that impression made in the press room. And it would pass inspection and they'd keep on going in the production of that truck. But he couldn't do it without the tool. And actually the tool and he worked, literally, hand in hand together. The tool's hand, as it were, grasping his hand and plied in the right place, it'd work out. Well, in the same way, Ephesians six seventeen, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. What the Spirit uses in our lives to make us alive, to bring us to life, is he uses the word of God applied right at the points. And how many of us have gone through experiences in life or whether it's a range of experiences of, uh, of, of ecstatic joy that brought us to gratitude, remembering that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights of of despondency of remembering that David encouraged himself in the Lord and found God to be the one who was and here's the scriptural phrase again the tool the sword of the spirit the lifter up of his head or in the middle of a really ferocious temptation a young person realizing there's no temptation that's come to you but such as is common to man and with the temptation there's a way of escape. And so the power of the Word of God surges through us as the Spirit is using the Word in our life and the Word of God is richly dwelling within us and becomes the preoccupation of our heart. And it's the grist into which the Spirit of God works because He uses that tool to bring it about. Now, He leads us. He leads us. What leads you around? What leads me around? Your daytimer? Your smartphone? Your checkbook? Your online banking? Your quest for the next pleasurable experiences? Your quest for the next cool experience? that weekend or that week of titillation that you have planned? Or are we driven by an intentional walk with Christ facilitated by the Holy Spirit? Is He leading us for all who are led by the Spirit of God or the sons of God? Andy had knee surgery, my wife, in January. And through God's mercy and your prayers and kindness and notwithstanding the nursing she had at home, uh, for me, uh, she she did great. She's coming. She's doing really really good, and um, I'm afraid now of what this is going to do to her golf golfing this summer. I, she may beat the daylights out of me every time instead of just half the time. But anyway, um, along the way, then uh, in her limitations, while she was recovering, I had to do some shopping. Now I hate to shop. I I, I and I don't understand people who love shopping. I I don't like to shop. Uh, the best that I do is bird dog shopping. If I need something, I go get it and get out of the store. You know, that's why you shop. You you get it and leave. Well, I had to go to the grocery. Now, there's a couple of mind-numbing things about the grocery. One is there's one or two items there. Uh, and and then uh, Kroger changes the aisles uh, three times a month. So then you're trying to figure out where it was in the last time, you know, whatever. So, um uh, I didn't even know it was possible to buy the wrong kind of ranch dressing. It is. I've proven that it is possible to do that. Uh, I did not buy Hidden Valley ranch dressing. I thought, you know, ranch, okay, get some ranch dressing. Got it. Ranch dressing. Wrong ranch dressing. And then I was tasked with getting some chocolate chips. And for a moment, I wished I was in Romania, you know, because I went down the chocolate chips aisle, and I was stunned by the variety of chocolate chips that you can buy. So I get down there and say, which chocolate chip am I supposed to buy? And of course, I bought the wrong one. Now, I do the same thing every time I go to Kroger to find something. I look down the row and I find one of those carts and one of those persons busily taking stuff off because they know where stuff is, the click list people. So I, I you know, I, but I feel badly. And I was told once, you know, they're kind of on the clock and you're messing them up. Please don't do that. But... Um, it's either their time or mine, and they, they have more time than I do. So, you know, it's like, hey, where is this? Oh, that's aisle 16. Uh, it's on the B side, and it's down on the left, and it's next to this. I need led around by the hand. I need somebody to take me to aisle 16. This is the A side, this is the B side, and the, this, is, this is where it all is, and there it is right there. That's what I need. That's the best kind of help. I need led around by the hand. This is described in Romans 8:16. 16. The children of God, if we will but yield ourselves to Him, are led around by the hand of our gracious Lord through the mediated Spirit of God. You say, Eric, I'm in a tough situation. I don't know what to do. Let Him lead you around by the hand. Let Him lead you. Yield yourself to Him. Give yourself to Him. Don't grieve Him or quench Him. Obey Him. Follow Him. He leads us. The first thing he does is he brings us to experience God. Now this is again where we get back to the Jones quote. Is this us? Look at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Look, this is not taking us back into the law, the drudgery of trying to obey the law, to be self-righteous enough, to be accepted enough, to believe enough, to pray enough, to go to church enough. No, it's not taking us back into fearful bondage again. No, we've been delivered from that. He's bringing us into the freedom of relating to God through the Spirit of God and experiencing Him in that relating. One of the tragedies of self-righteously trying to keep the law to be accepted is that we experience fear and bewilderment wondering whether or not we have the right stuff. And the answer is we don't, which is the glory of Jesus who brings us to the right stuff. The Holy Spirit replaces our fear with the freedom in our relationship with God. And we are brought to the realization, and this is astonishing, that God... Has adopted us and made us one of his children. That to know Jesus Christ is to come to be placed in God's family. We weren't born into this family. We're born into Adam's. You see, Eric, I man, if I had to pick out my family of origin, I wouldn't have picked out my family of origin. You know what? We don't get that chance. But God in Christ picks us out for his family. We are adopted into his family. And this sonship, this daughtership. You say, Eric, who am I when I come to believe in Jesus? You are a daughter of God. And he takes care of his children. I text a husband yesterday who's waiting with his wife on a liver that if she doesn't get, she will die. And I reminded him, look, God loves your wife and you more than you could ever imagine. The sons of God, the daughters of God. Andy and I had friends who went to China, picked up the sweetest little Chinese girl whose mother had abandoned her after birth on a railroad platform in some obscure place in China. And where she was there compared to where she came to be after the adoption was just extraordinary. These parents who love her so deeply have given her a life that she would have never had. That's the glory of adoption. Many dear families in our own church have experienced that glory. But this is no garden variety glorious adoption into an earthly family. This is being adopted into the family of God. We now have a status as a full-fledged son. In the first century, uh, adoption was a big deal. It was a little more rare than in our day. But when it happened, often that person adopted would have an ascendancy in the family order (laughs) even trump the biological children be the most favored the most beloved and so paul dips into this cultural context and uses this metaphor and says when the spirit of god comes it awakens with us the realization that we've been adopted into the family of god who are we in christ we live in a day where People are super edgy about identity issues and who we are. We're into identity politics, we're into identity gender, we're into identity everything, sexual identity. And Here's an identity. I am an adopted son of a living God because of his grace. I'm an adopted daughter who couldn't be loved more You say, Eric, how do we come to realize this? This is the benefit of the Spirit of God's work in our life. He brings us to this. And there's something that happens. It's reciprocal. He adopts us. And we so moved by His act. And notice what it costs. It's expensive to adopt. Good Friday was a big bill. He was willing. He did not spare His own son, but delivered Him up. For us all will he not with him freely give us all things. But then this realization moves our heart to affectionately relate to God. He's not distant and foreboding and unknown. He's a heavenly Father. You see, Eric, my earthly father, that's not a good picture for me. Well, I want you to know everything you've ever yearned for and more is found in the perfect Father we have in the living God in heaven. I just spent a week with our son. God is giving them another child in June and they're out of bedrooms for guests because they, it's going to be co-opted for a nursery. So we were finishing his basement, framing it out. And I was around his son, a little two-year-old boy, fascinating guy. Um, he uh, Every morning about 6.50, he... he begins to sing in his crib and he sings Has a concert for about 20 minutes and it's fascinating B.I.B.L.E. Zacchaeus was a wee little man Twinkle Twinkle Little Star kind of a nice concert to wake up to but anyway uh, what was really neat was when his dad comes home at the end of the day he can hardly stand it he just can't stand it Dad, dad he runs up and down the hall and he'll dance at the window because his dad's coming in and then the embrace and his words it's it's those just little boy words at two years old dada Uh, that's what's here abba it's papa it's the most affectionate aramaic term it's a term that tender children would use of a gracious father in the home abba father You say, Eric, God must be stark, he's distant. No, you don't understand. The one who has a hold of us is Abba Father, Papa, Papa Father. And that's how he wants us to relate to him, and that's what is facilitated by the Spirit of God. And I ask you, are we back to Bobby Jones' quote, or is this what we're experiencing? Is this how you view him? He loves us loves us finally he assures us of our salvation he assures us look at verses 16 and 17 the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of god this is a very important verse and if children then heirs heirs of god and fellow heirs with christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him by the way when we look at 818 next week we'll delve into the inklings of suffering that show up in verse 17 but one of the things the spirit of god does the this great difference is he assures us of our salvation the spirit of god brings us to relate to god a communion of spirit god's spirit bearing witness with our spirit now think with me just for a moment we have a human spirit it's a part of our constitution it's a part of our humanity it's a part of being made in the image of god and God has the Spirit of Christ. And there's a communion of spirits. My spirit with his spirit. You say, Eric, that—that that you know, when's the Rod Sterling uh, music come on here? You know, Twilight Zone. What in the world is that? Some, And I, I appreciate C.S. Lewis' quote, and I've used it before, and I believe it. Christianity is a thinking man's game. But I would only add this. Christianity is more than thoughts. Christianity is an experience with God. Henry Blackerby in 2007 wrote a book called Experiencing God. The title alone sold millions because people wanted to experience God. And what is being described here is the experience of God. That God would deign to interact with us and His Spirit bears witness with our spirit in a confirming way that we are the children of God. That's pretty extraordinary. That's pretty amazing. Now, back to Christianity as a thinking man's game. We do need to understand what he has revealed about himself with right thoughts. That's what theology is. A word about God. And we need to get that straight. But Christianity is more than thoughts. We're just not playing mind games. Let's talk about this idea of God. It's about the experience of God. And in that sense, our spirit bearing witness with God's spirit, that's not irrational. That's rational. That's a rational thought. But it's not simply, it's a a, rational thought alone in that sense it's more than rational it it, there's a reasonable way to think about my spirit bearing witness with god's spirit but that interaction of my spirit with god's spirit is a spiritual experience god is to be experienced not just thought about and not just thought about in the right ways that's good theology but he is to be experienced But as John Calvin said, what we want is a scripturally mediated experience where in his word he discloses himself to us and our spirit bears witness with God's spirit, spiritually confirming the work of God in our lives. Warren Wiersbe, nine years a pastor here. It may have been at this very church from which this story springs, I don't know. A wife was faithful to church and her husband came with her once in a while. And he came to talk to Pastor Wiersbe back in the day. And he asked him a few, he said, I'm trying to figure out this whole Jesus thing and where I am with my relationship with Jesus. And so Pastor Wiersbe asked him a few questions and he gave pro forma what seemed like the right answers. And so Pastor Wiersbe told him, look, dude, you're saved you're fine. You're a child of God. You've got started. He said, really? Yeah. And he walked out of his office. It was the last time he ever saw him in church. And he thought, what in the world's that? Years later, the guy came to him and said, look, Wearsby, I got a question for you. Why in the world did you tell me that I was saved, that I belonged to the Lord? I was lost as I could be. I recently came to know Jesus Christ as my Savior. I came to be delivered from my sin by placing my faith in Jesus. Weersby said that was the absolute last time I ever told anybody that they were fine with God. Because, he said, the Spirit of God is very good at confirming in the lives of people where they are with himself. Our spirit, bearing witness with God's spirit that we are the children of God. Now, by the way, that's not a knock on Wiersbe, but I, I was with him when he told that story. It's fascinating. And what he was saying? I'm going to lean in from this point on in inherent trust in the spirit of God who does this kind of work. By the way, has he done that kind of work in your life? Have you ever run into somebody who was really struggling with the assurance of their salvation? I'll tell you what resolves the struggle is when his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And when it's about him and him alone, we know that's fixed and completed. It's why he said it is finished and then gave his spirit to the Lord. Are you resting and trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Has God by the Spirit confirmed this work? And as it were, over the balcony of heaven, have you heard from him and hear in a continuing way, this is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son. I'm talking about that kind of a confirmatory experience with our Lord. John Wesley said when we come to him, this is vectoring off of verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. He said, I came to Christ and exchanged the faith of a servant trying to keep the law, the drudgery of a slave. I exchanged the faith of a servant for the faith of a son. And then we become a fellow heir of Christ. We join His entourage we benefit from his benefits. My mentor was for 15 years the chaplain for the Philadelphia 76 er professional men's basketball team in Philadelphia. And one night he invited me. He said, Eric, why don't you come and talk to the Sixers before the game? You speak in chapel before the game. So our family went. It was long-remembered evening. We, we had a great time. You know, just doing something we, just completely different. So I spoke, and we went to the game, and after the game... We went down into the lounge, and it was the players' lounge, and and um, you know they they treat them pretty good, and um, um, which means there's good food there. But anyway, uh, it was interesting. There was a Hall of Fame basketball player named Alan Iverson who was playing for the Sixers at that time, and um, his was it his wife or the mother of his child? I'm not sure. Her mother. Uh, Maybe it was his mother and then a whole bunch of his friends. It was like the Allen Iverson entourage. They come walking down the hallway. There they are. And they come walking in this room. And there we are, like sprinkled through the room. And they just take up a whole corner of the room in this big entourage. Now, m- most everyone in the entourage had nothing to do with the Philadelphia Sixer basketball team. But they were eating Philadelphia Sixer. Basketball, food after the game because they were in his entourage. Sidebar, don't lose the illustration. My boys wanted his autograph really bad. They were small, and th- there's a bunch of people over there in that corner of the room, and, and Iverson's sitting in the very corner, and, and they're afraid to go over there, but they, they get up a little courage and they'd get through the first wave and the second wave, and then they'd lose heart and come back. And uh, their little sister saw this all going on, and she went up to him and said, Hey, you want his autograph? He said, yeah, we're, we're trying to get in there. She said, give me that piece of paper. She just walked right in there and said, hey, I want your autograph. He signed Allen Iverson, gave it to her, and she brought it back and just handed it to them. And, you know, they put their heads down. They didn't have the courage to do that. Those people were in that room and had no business in, the, in that room, just like me. I was a guest. I was just invited there. But they were there because they knew him. One of the things that the Spirit of God does is it brings us into the entourage of Christ. Of all the entourages you'd ever want to be on, you want to be an heir of Christ, a co-heir of this one, so you can go where he goes and where he has gone. What a glory there is in knowing Christ. God by the Spirit has brought us into the entourage of Jesus. Wow, we're His. I want to be in that crowd. The world hates Him. We get hit with that brushstroke. That's what the suffering's about at the end of the verse. So I ask you a question Are we playing at this stuff, or is this real? Are we just talking about ideas of the experience of God, or are we together here at Calvary experiencing God? I love the way Ann Ortland uh, starts her book up with worship. Ray Ortland Sr.'s wife, Ray Ortland Jr.'s mother. You've read, I was talking to a brother this morning about Deeper, that'd be his grandfather, Gavin Ortland. When I was little, she wrote, we used to play church with my friends. We'd get the chairs in rows and fight over who'd be the preacher vigorously lead the hymn singing, and generally have a great carnal time. The aggressive kids naturally wanted to be up front directing or preaching. The quieter ones were content to sit and be entertained by the upfronters. Occasionally, we'd get mesmerized by a true sensationalist crowd swayer, like the girl who said, boo, I'm the Holy Ghost. But in general, if the upfronters were pretty good, they could hold their audience quite a while, If they weren't so good, eventually the kids would drift off to play something else like jump rope or jacks. That generation of children has now grown up, but most of them haven't changed much. Every Sunday they still play church. They line up in rows for entertainment. If it's pretty good, their church may grow. If it's not too hot, eventually they drift off to play something else like yachting or wife swapping. Where are we? At Calvary, have we realized that the Spirit of God has come to take us places we couldn't go without Him and take us there with Jesus and experiencing the depths of the life that God has wanted for us all along? Father, by Your Spirit, speak to hearts this morning, right now for the tentative and halting who have yet trusted in their self-righteousness and have little assurance, Lord, help them throw themselves completely on you. For those who have yet to come to believe in Jesus, all meet him. Open their hearts to you. Retired pilgrims who just need to be held by a loving Father in heaven who couldn't care for the hard things they're going through more. Oh, sweet Spirit, use our closing song. Hear our prayers. Offer groans that are greater than words to our Father to help us in this good way following Jesus, we pray. Amen.